0: Welcome to The Naked Podcaster. Get ready to hear stories of someone brave enough to
1: bear it all. Let's get
0: naked. Welcome to The Naked Podcaster. Today I have Dr. Rob Kelly. Dr. Kelly, how are you?
1: I'm doing good. How are you today? Thank you for having me.
0: I'm really excited. And now are you actually, where are you located now? Because I know you have an accent.
1: I do. I'm originally from Manchester, United Kingdom, residing in San Antonio, Texas, for the last 13 years in Texas?
0: No kidding. My best friend and my daughter live in San Antonio, Texas. So I may shop wow. on your doorstep. It would be awkward.
1: There you go. Make sure you dress though.
0: I will probably wear clothes for the trip. Yes. Yes.
1: Excellent. Excellent. I want
0: to start out by talking about what you do right now, who you are. I have your website up. It's robkelly.com. Obviously we'll have everything in the show notes, but I really want you to talk a lot about what you do and why you love it
1: i um i'm I'm an addiction guy obviously we'll get into that later but i help people get over addiction and build a life so most people in my industry uh on drugs and alcohol if we could just stop that would be awesome no you won't you're still left with me if i if i'm trying to quit alcohol and drugs so it's better in their lives working with the family getting that job car girlfriend or whatever they want to achieve that's what i do in a nutshell
0: you have a really out-of-the-box way of thinking that I know sets you apart. Can you dive into a little bit of that? And both of my parents were addicts. I had a relationship with an addict. It's tough, and you try to make it
1: easier. Well, you know, you have to understand, I mean, it's been in the brain for 20-something years regarding addiction. You have to understand that the alcohol and drugs are the symptom. What I really had was a brain remapping brain uh, illness, and that, I believe, were born alcoholics. And the remapping of the brain as a child and child abuse. How do you define child abuse with the alcoholic brain? Anything less than nurturing is child abuse. So map that, we go forward. A lot of people concentrate on the alcohol and drugs. It's not the alcohol and drugs. Alcohol has little to do with alcoholism. Drugs have little to do with drug addiction. It's all about the way of thinking. So what we say, not. we don't have a drinking problem. We have a thinking problem.
0: Right, which I absolutely love. And if we hear dogs in the background, I have a dog. She's a rescue. We love it. And we're just going to be patient with the fact that we all have our lives happening in the background behind the video. So you can even tell us about your dogs, so we know what we're hearing. Well,
1: actually, we we have four English Bulldogs. So my wife's American. I know. My wife's American. uh, Janet, no, we call her Jay Bear. Oh, I call there. Uh, she's American, and she has an English husband. She drives a Range Rover, English car, and she has four English bulldogs. Are you sensing a theme here?
0: Yeah, yeah. I've seen the picture of you with one of the bulldogs. I know that you have yeah. pictures of them. That's awesome. Yeah. So. So tell me what, pretty much, I understand the philosophy behind your uh, recovery group and your, what you do, and I want to dive in a little bit more to the 20 plus years, because we're going to hear about your story specifically, but when did you decide to get your PhD in psychology?
1: I was at an early age, just because uh, no one in my family has been to, been to college or university, mm-hmm. nobody. So I have, I'm going to keep coming back to this, guys. I have the addicted brain. Now, the addict's brain is a very, very fascinating brain. It's very smart, very clever, uh, uh, operates on a higher level than a normal brain. So I wanted to go to college. If I'm going to go to college, I want to go to the best in the world. If I'm going to be an addictionologist, I want to be the best in the world. So it's either all or nothing for me. So I joined the Freemasons because not, I've not got the, the qualifications to get to college, by the way, nor have I got the money to get to college from my family. So I joined the three mentions. They got me as somebody who's somebody who's somebody. And through my work as a session musician at Abbey Road, finally got myself into Oxford University. So I actually joined Green's College, which is to become an MD, become a doctor. But to my absolute aghast, they threw me out for being drunk every day. So I couldn't do that. Or, you know, I just, I just couldn't do it. So they said, hey, here's the deal. You're going... To our PhD program, and uh, that's what you'll
0: do. <laughs> I, fr- I I read about your music. Now you've been taught. You've been touted as the Gordon Ramsay of the addiction world, which I think is phenomenal. Tell us about that.
1: Well, I, I tend to curse a lot when I'm really getting excited about stuff, and there's a, there's a, there's a, a method behind my madness. So um, I believe in shocking the disease. So I want to find out the worst of the worst inside you, I call it the disease. So I'm talking to either you or I'm talking to your disease. When I talk to your disease, I'm not going to say, hey, you shouldn't be doing this or hey, what do you think you're talking about? I'm going to really scream at them and curse words come out and it really gets their attention. So because they back off a little bit and then get offended that I'm, I'm cursing at them, that's when the disease raises its ugly head and I can see it in their eyes. So that's the reason why it's uh, it's very, very useful. Plus, it's the only place i curse really, sometimes when I'm talking about my job. Um, <laughs> and I just think it gets people's attention, you know? I, I do it a couple of times when I'm talking. Plus, if you're talking for an hour and, and it's mundane and, and, and it's uh, the same sort of monologue across, if you stop and throw some curse words in there, you grab someone's attention, everything stops for a minute. And they go. Well, the amount of time people come to you and go, you know something, I was just going to walk around the room and I heard you go, fuck you, you've got to get sober, and I stopped in my place and I turned around and now I'm seven years sober, Robert. thank you so much. So it is handy, it does come in handy.
0: I, I love that. I want to go back in time and discuss your story. Like you said, you you didn't grow up in the US, so Manchester, England.
1: Yeah, Manchester, England. I was, I, was, uh, I was part of a musical family. So my auntie and my uncle were playing the clubs and pubs for years and years. That's how they sort of topped up their income. And uh, I was on stage at the age of nine or ten playing bass guitar with them. So I was a nervous child. I wasn't very really confident. And I remember it was in Liverpool. My, uh, we'd come off the first set. we are doing two sets. There was about a thousand people there. It's usually only about 60. And I was terrified. And my my uncle said, have a drink of this beer. It'll calm you down. When I took a mouthful of that beer, the whole world just changed in front of me. The second half performance was amazing, I thought. And from then on, alcohol served me for talking to women, for going to things I wouldn't normally do, to be confident, to be bashful, to be loud, to be aggressive, all these things that I am today. Alcohol made me into so it served a good purpose for a long time with me. I must admit, and then uh, playing every weekend, I went to normal school. Secondary school was great, and uh, I started. I was looking around. I went to be a session musician, so I applied for a job at a little studio owned by Ten CC in Stockport, just outside Manchester. And I got the job. I got it really easy, actually, which surprised me. Uh, I was kind of a savant on the bass, just like I'm a Mr. What I do today, and after about a few months there, somebody said, "Hey, there's a there's a bass playing position going at Abbey Road. Do you want a session bass player there?" So I applied for it, and I always remember, Jen, this will kill you. So I goes down there for the interview. I'm all nervous, and I'm stood outside, and uh, I looked to the corner. There's, there's a little newsagent, and in the agent you sell beer. So I went and got one beer to calm myself down. So I drank the one beer, went in, gave me the session work, did it, went back home, waited for the envelope to come because we had no email back then. And they came and said, I've passed the first audition. We'd like to invite you for a second. So on the train down again, stood outside. I'm thinking, well, this is the second one. It had one beer for the first one. Let's have two beers for the second audition. There was seven auditions. So by the time the seventh audition went, I couldn't even remember going back in there. You know, and I was so drunk, I don't remember anything. I just know that it was probably a good time. So I went back home and about two weeks later, I got the letter to say that I got the position. So what did that tell me? When I drink alcohol, I'm successful. And that's where it all started to go. Not wrong straight away, but the, the message I got was alcohol solve solved all my problems.
0: It certainly didn't hurt them. And what you were describing in the beginning is that liquid courage, right? That fear of not doing things on your own, but with a little liquid courage, you can make it happen.
1: Always. Always. You see, it took me to a different level. It's just like, I don't know, it made me this person. You see, here's, here's the story of me. I, I'm never good enough, okay? Like, I was running a, a multi-million dollar telecom company, and I'd have the Porsche, and I'd have the Rolex watch on and all the gold chains and everything. And I'd park right outside of a nightclub. So when it went in the nightclub, all the girls knew I was rich. So they would come over and buy him a drink and, you know, off you go. But when they asked me what I did for a living, I couldn't say that I was a CEO of a telecom company. I had to be a footballer or an astronaut. Or there was this big bear on TV for a kid's show. I told him I was, one of, I, was, I was bungled from this rainbow show. It's like I could never be myself. I always have to exaggerate, you know, I'm actually, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm an actor or, you know, I'm a, I'm a soccer player. It's like, no, you're not. Because I was always really embarrassed to be me. And if you only found out the real me, you wouldn't really like me. And that's been my premise for the last 30 years or so, I think. Except I still a lot- think that today, Jen. You're kidding me. No, I still think I'm not good enough. Uh, what the hell does she want me on a podcast for? What I do TV. I've been on Oprah. It's like waiting in the wings of Doctor Phil. It's Like, what the hell am I doing here? On the doctors, all the TV do, I'm like, they've got the wrong person. When they find out who I'm really like, you know, and we get letters and texts and phone calls, you know, and Janet comes up and says, you seen this, and they go, oh, my God, Dr. Rob's amazing. He saved my life. And I'm like, are you sure that's addressed to me? Because all I did was kind of work with him. I don't do anything special. So I've had to work with that a lot. And Janet, Janet's my assistant. She's also my wife. I don't know you know that. Guys, yeah, she's awesome. She's also the director of operations, but uh, she's walking through a lot of stuff that made me find out my worth.
0: It's interesting because I- a lot of other guys would say they were the CEO of a company to lie. Yes, and exactly. or or have their PhD.
1: Yes, yeah. You see, because I come from where I come from, I come from a council estate, which you guys call a project, and uh, <laughs> so I, went back to, uh, I was I was an imposter. I wasn't, I felt, I've had the imposter syndrome now. I only got rid of it about six months ago. I've always had it. So when people call me a fraud because I'm not an MD, I'm only a PhD, I would get offended and hurt by that and then try and prove myself to them. I don't do that today. You can think what you think, you do what you do, I do what I do and uh, life is a lot easier. You see, the thing is, Jim, I know today I'm never going to be blonde enough, never going to be thin enough, never going to be tall enough and never going to be rich enough. I want to put that out, it makes me breathe and go, ah, I don't have to chase them dreams. Because, you know, a couple of months, a couple of years ago, when I first met Jan, it's like, we just get 100 grand in the bank, in our personal account, I will stop worrying about money. When we got 100 grand, he was like, well, if we could just get a quarter of a million in there, then it, would, and it just carries on and carries on and carries on. And there's no, there's no stopping it. I still think, sat here, with middle high figures in my checking account, I'm going to go broke, I'm going to end up on the streets.
0: Where does that fear
1: come from? Um, Comes from what happened on the streets. I think it comes from my my poor upbringing. I mean, it it absolutely blows my mind when I when I see the bills sometimes come in, and I go, okay, so our standard of living, we have to earn ten thousand dollars before we can eat. That's crazy. It's like what the old the old council estate boy wants to come in and go, are you fucking kidding me? Right, what the f- you know, but it's it is what it is, you know, and, and I'll always have that. What if I go broke? What if I go broke? And I just wish I could get rid of that, but I can't, I just can't get rid of it.
0: It's interesting because I grew up below poverty level, and so we act, react very differently. So in my life, I wanted to keep everything as stress the lowest stress, the least amount of bills, so that my overhead was as low as it could possibly be. And that way, I didn't have the stress of having the big numbers. And you went the exact opposite.
1: Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I, I just, <laughs> I like to live large. And I like to, yeah. I, I like nice things. And material things, I mean, when when, when me and Janet first met, we were married for five years. So we met about six, seven years ago. Uh, I was out the industry. I would finished with it. I think when I know it, I was driving a little van. Uh, for a pest control company. And she was a director of a university. So we both had nine to five jobs. She earned like three times as much as me. They were the happiest times of our lives. When we look back, it's like we both used to leave at nine, we used to come back at five, we share our day. We didn't have much, but we enjoyed it. It's like now we've got money coming out of our ears. It's like, oh, I do know. It's just, it's like you take everything for granted. Yeah. And it's stressful.
0: Well, yeah, because like I have to come up with $3,000 a month and you have to come up with 10,
1: Yeah.
0: right? I wanna go back, so you got that gig, you drank seven, you literally drank seven beers before the seventh audition, you, oh. that, that's nuts to me. And then what oh. happened next?
1: What do we do next from now?
0: Well, no, I mean, so you got that audition, you got the, the snail mail. The post came in and said you yes. got that job after the seven year audition that you didn't remember. So keep going yep. with that story. Take us through that story some more.
1: So that was it. I was at Abbey Road. I mean, I was getting paid $1,000 an hour in 1977. So it's probably about 15 grand an hour now. But I was very, very good. So I'd go down there and we'd session with guys I didn't know. And, and then uh, all of a sudden when you, uh, that, uh, Freddie Mercury was coming down to do some sessions, with the guys. So I got a call once at home and said, Hey, Freddie Mercury wants to come in and do like 10 hours with him. Are you okay to do that? And I'm trying to work calm on the phone going, Well, I don't think I'm double booked, so I think I can do it. You know, <laughs> on my inside's going, Holy shit! It's Freddie Mercury. So I goes down there and now now I'm living the lifestyle, Jen. I'm just I'm driving the Bentley's, um, I'm, I'm living, you know, we, we come out of a, a session, uh, Elton John. I did a session with Elton John. It was me, the lead guitar player, a couple of girls, and Elton went back to the Savoy Hotel in the penthouse suite. This is the craziness of the world I was in. So it was a rainy, stormy, horrible, windy, horrible night. So we got the car around, and we all jumped out, straight in the executive lift, up to the penthouse, and we're all in there. There's there's paraphernalia is all I can say all around me, and alcohol, it's amazing. And the next minute, I heard Elton in the other room screaming on the phone. And I'm like, what's going on? So I walked into the room in his bedroom and he's on the phone and, he, and this is his conversation on the phone. He's talking to a receptionist. If you don't stop the rain and the wind right now in London, I will never book into this hotel again. That's the madness we were in. You know, he truly believed that they could stop the wind for him because he was so important and, and we're all sort of, well, I was just out my face. But when, when you get to that status, when you get to that you know level of, Almost people adoring you, then it's a different world completely. So, my alcoholism and my addiction, because I like cocaine as well, uh, took off like crazy. Because now, who, who was I accountable to? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm bringing on extortionate amounts of money um, and, and I'm working little hours for it. So, it gives me lots of times to play, and it really starts to go downhill real, real quick.
0: What was that like? And I mean, you have to try a bunch of stuff to know that alcohol and cocaine are your drugs of choice.
1: Yes. <clears throat> yes, I did. I uh, Alcohol was always the one I thought, wow. And it was always the one where I could drink and nobody, I thought nobody knew I could drink. Uh, oh, by the way, whoever said vodka don't smell was a fucking liar <laughs> because you can stink it coming through your skin and everything. Everyone knows you're drinking vodka. So I used to think a bottle of vodka and a breath mint Nobody would know I was drunk, but it's not true. So alcohol was always my go-to. And of course, uh, I used to uh, swallow uh, weed or anything else. So I tried all different kinds of drugs. Never tried heroin, never tried crack. It wasn't out in my day. I tried speed and cocaine. Uh, I always like to be in charge a little bit when I'm under the influence. And then what I do is I was a bodybuilder as well when I was young, so I would drink on my, on, my, on my months off. And when the competition would come up, I would flip over to speed and cocaine and get cut like crazy, but say I was sober because I wasn't drinking beer. And that's how my life was. It was just, I don't know, it spiraled out of control. I didn't see it though, Jen. I was the last to know when I think about it because people just say to me, Rob, you really have a problem. And I had that problem. I live in a million dollar house. I have a Porsche, a Bentley and a Rolls Royce. I earn more money in a week than you earn in five years. How dare you tell me I've got a problem? And at the same time, I'm doing this on the phone. I'm walking around my garden at 530 in the morning, halfway down a pint of vodka. Oh, wow. Still didn't think I had a problem.
0: No, not if you think that status and money is a symbol of not having a problem plus you were doing all that with this so-called problem so who cares why is it a problem exactly. if it's? i mean it's working really well for you since you were nine yes. yes what about your family now you went with your uncle and your aunt to the to, to play and they offered it to you was addiction rampant in the family
1: yeah well i only found out later that my mom was kind of an alcoholic my uncle on my dad's side was a chronic alcoholic and then my cousin's and granddad, yeah, alcoholism in my family. But back then in the 60s and 70s, yeah. didn't really know much about it. But there's yeah. a giveaway, guys. If, if you want to find out alcoholism in your family and you ask your mom about granddad, if, if they say granddad liked to drink, he's a chronic alcoholic. That's what he is. Because that's what they used to say about my granddad. Well, he liked to drink now and again. Yeah, I bet he did. Yeah. You know? But now, like every day, all
0: day. Yeah, because yeah. I was raised in that same scenario you know where and it was 1970 and they it was not looked at the same so a lot of times people are like how did you not know or why didn't you do something you have to look at the time frame that it was happening in, also and you're correct in the 60s and 70s there was no addiction didn't look the same as it does now so you're playing with Elton John you're playing on Abbey Road you have a million-dollar house Take a, keep going with the story. Keep telling us about what that was like. Because eventually I want to get to the point where you're homeless and then you have to figure shit out.
1: <clears throat> so, unbelievably, they fired me from Abbey Road for being drunk every time I turned up. Can you imagine that for a second? So I was fired from there. Uh, I was also going to college. So after I graduated, I came back I became a policeman. Don't know why. I think it was a Freemason thing. All of, all my friends in the Freemasons were high-ranking police officers. So I become a policeman. Uh, six months later, they fired me for being drunk at work. This is fucking pattern coming here, you know, but I couldn't see it. And then i will come home, I was all embarrassed. And, and uh, I remember the, going back in the, the station and the sergeant says, give me your badge. And you know, you're drunk, you've been fired. Don't drive home, you're too much over the limit. Go home, you alcoholic, you. And I remember walking home thinking, I can't believe he just called me an alcoholic. I didn't think about being fired. Or how embarrassed my parents would be. It was like, he called me an alcoholic. What the hell is that all about? There's no way I'm an alcoholic. Alcoholics to those guys on the corner with the big coats on the string tied around the waist, you know, drinking out of a brown paper bag. I mean, I can't be an alcoholic. So I went back home. I got a job in the uh, It was just the big, it was beginning of the telecoms. But it was for the, we built masks or they built masks for Army and, and Navy. And then later on in telecoms. So after about a month in there, I had the alcoholic addicted brain. So I know quite well after a month that I can do this. So I set my own company up. And within probably about a year, we were doing about 1.4, 1.5 million. And then again, I'm up at the top. So now, you know, I'm drinking every day. I'm drinking early in the morning at work. Uh, Decided to get married. I thought, I'll get married. Maybe I'll calm down a little bit. And uh, maybe I'll cut back on drinking. Didn't happen. So we decided to have our first baby. Well, that was it for me. I've finished drinking, my wild days are over, I'm done. Went to the hospital, first baby was born, looked at my wife in the eyes and said, I'm done with alcohol. The worst three hours of my life. (laughs) All I lasted was three hours, I know. And I'm halfway drunk again and and it was just horrible. And It went on for another two years, three years and then we had the second child. And when we had the second child, I knew that I, I had to get serious now. So we bought a dog and uh, went to the hospital and the second baby was born. And I took two Bibles with me. I got a Bible on, the, on this bed and I put two hands on the Bible, one in each. And I looked my wife in the eyes and I said, I'm telling God now that my drinking days are over. And the baby was born. And they all cried. And it was amazing. Worst six hours of my life. Because after six hours, I was drunk again. And it just continued. And, and the chaos in that house. Like I remember I remember trying to get down the stairs. And my two-year-old, three-year-old was trying to get down the stairs in the morning. But I wanted a drink. So I was trying to get past her, And I knocked it down. And I fell. And I fell on her, And I nearly killed her. Another thing. I remember coming down in the morning about 2 o'clock in the morning. And you had some vodka somewhere because my head was banging. And I needed a drink. And I came down. and I'm looking around the kitchen. And I found the bottle of vodka. It was half full. Oh, my God. It's like winning the lottery. And I got the bottle in my hand. I put it to one side. I turned around for a crystal glass. Because I'm not an alcoholic. So I want this crystal glass to put the vodka in at fucking two o'clock in the morning. What's all that about? And as I turned around again to grab the bottle again, my wife had followed me downstairs and she grabbed it. And she said, Rob, I think you've had enough. She was probably right, should have gone back to bed. Thank you, Mrs. Kelly. I'll be up in three hours, go to work. What this alcoholic did is I took a kitchen knife out and I stabbed her three times. And as she hit the floor, started spurting out blood, I called the ambulance, I jumped in a taxi, And I got the hell out of England, I went to Spain. And I stayed three months in Spain and I wouldn't come back until she promised uh, through my attorney uh, and an alfred David that she wouldn't press charges. So I came back home and uh, when I came home, she had all her bags packed. And then she says, I'm leaving you. Uh, So I said, well, you can't tell my kids. And she said, yes, I can, and she took the kids. So I got touch told my attorney, I called him round and I said, hey, we spent about a million dollars with you. Here's the deal. You have 48 hours, or 24, I can't remember what it was, to bring my kids back. Otherwise we'll finished business with you. But if you do, I'll give you 20 grand, check. Next day, don't know how he did it, He'd been to the courts, knocked on the door, opened the door. Oh, Jen, it was unbelievable. My two daughters were there, ages one and three. It was such a great feeling. I gave them a check, I brought them in. You know, I put them in the front room in front of the TV. I walked into the kitchen. And I thought to myself, wouldn't it be awesome if I just had one beer to celebrate? That's all I remember. Three days later, when the police kicked the door down, because the babies hadn't been fed for three days, no diapers changed, no food, they almost died. And I'm on the floor unconscious. The the fella booted me in the head, woke me up, served me in papers, grabbed the children and walked to the door. I stood up, I walked to the door, there was vodka bottles all over the place. I stumbled to the door, my wife was there, the authorities there, the child people were there, the police were there, the mother-in-law was there. I was crying, they were crying, even the police were crying. And my one-year-old dog was walking up the path holding mommy's hand and she turned around and said, daddy, daddy, please don't go. And I I was crying because I knew what I'd done. And she walked further down the path and halfway down the path, she turned around and said, daddy, daddy, please get better. And then just as he got to the gate, mummy opened the gate and she turned around one more time and she said, Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. And that's the name of her book. Yeah. Because I never saw her for 20 years. Oh. 20 years passed and she's having nothing to do with me, you know, rightly so. Um, I have some good news. I'll tell you that shortly. But six months or around that time after she said that to me, I'd lost my house, my cars, I'd lost my kids and my wife. My parents won't speak to me. My brother and sister disowned me. Friends now threw me out. I went from friends to acquaintances and from acquaintances to the streets. And I found myself on the streets. And uh, I just remember sitting there going, where did it all go wrong? Still don't think I had a problem, by the way. Just thought I was, going uh, that was, I was just
0: going to ask you that. I was going to ask you that question. Okay. Where did it all go wrong when you were nine years old and handed that first beer?
1: Bank. You're the only person that's ever said that to me, but that's correct. That's where it all went wrong. You, you introduced an alcoholic to alcohol. And from then on, I didn't, I didn't stand a chance, Jan. My, my future was self-destruction. I have self-sabotaging pathways in my head. Your pathways are all self-sabotaged in my head. And I was always going to die. And that's the way it's always been. Why I'm, why I'm sat here today with you all these years on is, is an absolute act of God and a miracle. Absolutely.
0: You're on the street now how now and you don't think you have a problem what was that journey like
1: it was well i didn't actually go to hell but i could sure see it from where i was
0: yeah
1: it was that bad you know i would have to hurt people i watched people come out of nightclubs at night drunk yeah and i would i would hit them from behind knock them out and pinch the wallet That that see me right for beer for the night i would steal i would rob i would uh, threaten uh, I, I, I came from a council estate, not a project. I, I just, I knew how to survive. I was always a fighter. So I survived uh, and I actually adapted pretty well to be honest. And if the truth be known, I got pretty comfortable on the streets, you know, cause I could do what I want. I have no responsibilities. I can get drunk 24 hours a day. Um, but some, you know, some bad shit happened on the streets. I had all my teeth kicked out cause I lost about a hundred pounds cause I wasn't eating on a daily basis. I was just drinking. And uh, I, I just wanted to die, and, and that's what I tried to do. On two occasions, had six occasions, I tried to commit suicide. On two occasions, it worked. And I was brought back to life on a side stinky, horrible street. And uh, it carried on like that. And then the spiritual awakening came, and then my life started to take off from there.
0: So, so, so judging was that... on my hands
1: and knees that I realized that I couldn't stop drinking. That's when it was, when I realized it took all of that before I realized
0: I mean, what a huge, what a huge story. How did the spiritual awakening happen? How did that moment happen? Who was there? What was there?
1: Okay. Well, promise not to get freaked out.
0: I'm I'm all, I will will you story. Yeah.
1: Okay. will take about three minutes to get through it. But I'll tell you what, at the end, you'll go, no way. Okay. okay. So I dropped up to my hands and knees. I started crying from my belly. Yeah, I, I always visualize this. I'm on my hands and knees. It's pouring down with rain. I've got no shoes on. Somebody stole them the night before when I was dropped somewhere and crying from my belly. The rain's pouring down across my soaked head and the tears are mixing with the rain as they're hitting the cobbles of this road back street in Manchester. And I looked up to the sky and I said, if there's a God up there, I can't do this on my own anymore. A guy walked around the corner 30 seconds later, Jen. He'd missed his last bus home from a Bible study. He was also an alcoholic in recovery. He said, do you need help? And I said, yeah. He took me back to his house. He said, "As one can do, you can stay as long as you want. We're going to get your life back. But you've got to go to AA meetings with me." Well, I hated the AA meetings. I've been there before. With the shit—they want to know him. But I went with him, and uh, I was sat there listening to everyone share. And about thirty minutes in, this guy at the back of the room with a white beard and white hair—quite a, you know, sensible-looking chap—he started to share from from a uh, from a twelve-step book, and he said that he's recovered from alcoholism. And he started to say all this great stuff. And I walked over after. And I said, will you sponsor me? And he said, no, but I will be your spiritual advisor for 12 weeks. He said, bring yourself a book, the big book, and bring yourself a dictionary, and here's my address. So I went back to Derek's house, Derek was the thing I was staying with, and I said, I've got to go to this guy's house every Wednesday. So I would walk, I didn't have any bus but I'd walk there for an hour it took me to the guy's house. We'd sit down, we'd go over the book. I'd come home, he'd give me homework for the week. I'd go back the next Wednesday. I did that for 12 weeks. When I went through the steps with him, I knew I'd never drink again if I continues to do what he did. He showed me stuff in that book. He showed me stuff about alcoholism that nobody had ever seen before and nobody had heard. And he also told me that God had told him to guarantee the people I work with to recover. Guarantee it. That's why we have a 97% success rate. Fucking guarantee it, he said, bro And, the, and 12 weeks, Jan, I'm walking there and I'm walking back. It's a three-hour journey for me, an hour there, an hour with him, an hour back. The Sunday when I finish with them, I'm coming home. I get my first job the next day. I'm like, shit. Wow, the guy was right. He said my life would be amazing. So uh, two weeks later, I got my first paycheck. I was like $60 or something, 60 pounds. I thought, I'm going to buy John. Because this guy was unbelievable what he taught me. And I was working with other people, and people were getting well from what I was teaching them. So I went to the local gas station, petrol station, and I bought him a little teddy bear. That's all I could afford. And a little card. And I said, thank you, John, for this amazing experience. And I said, thank you, Richard, with God. And I walked back to his house an hour because I wanted to, to give it to him personally. I got there, knocked on the door, and no one answered. And I knocked that loud. that The girl on the right hand side said, come out, and she says, can I help you? And I said, can you tell me where John's moved to? Uh, and she said, there'd been no one in that apartment for at least three months i have been here. So I let her close the door. I'm thinking, she's crazy. And when she, the lights went off and she walked away from the door, I, I looked at the left hand and I banged on the left hand door and the guy came out. And I said, can you tell me where John's relocated to? And he said, that house has been empty for at least a year. I moved in a year ago. Nobody's ever lived there. Never found that man. Went back to the meeting where I left him. And this is where it got really horrible for me. Because I walked up to the guy who was chairing the meeting. And I said, do you remember when I was speaking to John? He's like, John. I said, the guy. And he said, I don't remember any guy. I said, and I was like, I was really frustrated with this guy. I said, was that a coffee fucking thing? Talking to him for like 20 minutes. Do you not remember him? And the guy said, No, Rob, but we remember still in the corner talking to yourself. Well, I grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and I run him against the door. And everyone jumped in and pulled me off. Because I thought he was I thought he was taking the piss. And I don't try to embarrass me in front of everybody. He swears to this day that I was speaking to myself. Never found the guy. Holy shit. And the teachings just blow people away. People that worried me get well. It's crazy.
0: i don't don't, doubt it for a second and i have no there's and there's no explanation oh my god did you feel like you were losing your mind at that point
1: um before i met john yes i was insane there was no doubt about that but after i met john the, the stuff i did with him brought me back to sanity i was clear thinking my i knew my life would change and i knew that i was put on this earth to help people you see when i was on the streets i hated god i hated everybody because I was on the streets and poor me and poor me. But when I look back now, the knowledge I got for living on the streets and losing my kids and was like a semester at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Because when people come to me in the day, they go, hey Rob, you don't know, sat in your big house driving your big car, what do you know about homelessness? Like, check. You've never lost your kid, check. You've never been stabbed and your teeth knocked, check. What else do you want to go with this? Because I've done fucking everything you can imagine. Yeah. and That's why I'm equipped today to take you through this. And that's why I'm the best in the world at what I do, because this is what I was meant to do. And guys, if you're listening out there, if you find your niche in life, believe me, you'll, I always said, my granddad said, you'll never work a day in your life. I love what I do because I do what I love. And I have a passion for it. You know, I don't get involved with the money side of my business. I have no idea how much we take, what we do. I'm not interested. What I want to do is, is do the one-on-one with people and get people well. And it's just been a, it's just been a journey and a half for me.
0: From that point, you now you're armed with all this information on basically this program. Yes. You have everything. Where I did remember. you go from there? Now you know that this is your calling in life to help people. Where did you go from there? Because you had to at some point get a PhD, which I would congratulate I'd, you hugely on.
1: I'd already got my PhD by then from Oxford. You this had? Was after, this was after I went to Oxford. Yeah, okay. after I was very wealthy and I lost everything.
0: Okay, okay.
1: So, so I, I'm, 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 I'm Dr. Rob on the streets. That everyone's laughing. At. I call myself, you know, Dr. Peter. You haven't got Peter. Got man. it. That's bullshit. You know, you're a fucking drunk and a, and a drunk. That's why it was so embarrassing. So after, after okay. I come off and I went through the guy, and I just, I started working with people. I mean, that was my okay. job. I mean, I got a little job part-time and, and then I went into a, a little apartment of my own. And then I got a full-time job. And then I opened a practice in Manchester, small practice, psychologist. And then uh, I got invited over to the USA for two weeks only. That was 14 years ago.
0: (laughs) That was my next question because we have to bridge that gap. (laughs) It's a different country. Why were you invited over and how did you stay and why?
1: Well, by now, someone had heard about me in Plano near dallas texas yeah about this great crazy guy who has this program given to him by god so uh, a church that says hey you want to come down we've got a serious hole game problem with our youth ministry we'll pay for you blah 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 here's your contact which was sue um uh, and i came over i put before i came over this is one of the reasons why i knew i meant to be here so a week before i'm here i get my I get my suitcase out, and I'm packing everything. I get my passport out, and, it's, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's two days expired, my passport. So I jumped on the bus and went down to Liverpool, 35 miles away from Manchester. I took it into the passport office. it would be about nine weeks. I said, it can't be nine weeks. I, I fly out in, in a week's time. It can't be. Can I expedite it? And they said, when well, you can, it's going to cost you three times as much, but you'll never, you're not going to be within four weeks. That's the time frame. So, I give everything to him. I didn't expedite, he wasted time. I walked back and uh, I was planning to call the girl. We'd speak every Thursday night on the internet. And I was waking, I was supposed to fly on, on Saturday. So, this was on like a Monday. So, I went home and I was waiting for Thursday to tell him I can't come. And on Wednesday, I knock came at the door and I went to the door and it was the postman. And he gave me a package. I opened the package, it was my passport in three days. So, that was the first crazy miracle that happened to me. When I came over here, I stepped off the plane at DFW and I knew I would never go back home to live. I don't know how or why or when. I I was only here for two weeks, Um, but I stayed and uh, within like, I had three months to apply for my citizenship on my green card. And with the end of the three months, I got a DVD contract with a big film company. So all of a sudden now I've got $150,000 in the bank that I didn't have three months ago. Now I can start buying house, buying practices, and, and that's what I did. I, I sell practice, and uh, I started to come on TV and radio. But I had the mind when I came here that I was going to become famous for what I do. And I was going to be on TV programs that nobody can get on, like Oprah and, and Dr. Phil and the, do- the doctors. And I just had a mind that's, I believe, if you, if you, what you can visualize in your mind, you can hold in your hand. You know, I don't care what anybody says. You can be or do anything you want in this world. And people always fly back and go, well, you can't be president. Well, I beg to differ today. We have a businessman running the country. He's not a politician. He's a businessman. So don't give me that shit that you can't be. You can do anything you want. You know, quantum physics tells us that. And that's I believe in quantum physics. I believe the power of the mind. And I believe that you should live life to the full. Alcohol and drugs are the symptom. What's the fucking problem? The problem is that I need my neural pathways redirecting to healthy neural pathways. Otherwise, I'm going to relapse. And that's why I specialize in neuroscience.
0: Did you ever have to go back and get your stuff?
1: Yeah. I, well, when, when you put in for your green card over here, your permanent resident, you can't leave the country for 18 months. Otherwise, it's void and you have to file again. So I was stuck here for 18 months. I had friends back there. But yeah, but I eventually went home. Oh, I didn't really have much, to be honest, Jen. Yeah. But I went back, and uh, <clears throat> by this time, I'm still not speaking to my family. My sisters disowned me. I, I, right. I found out my brother was sleeping with my wife. You know, I mean, it was just horrendous when I was sober. But I dealt with all of it. I came back, and I set up life over here. And it was uh, the rest is history.
0: Let's sign back into your wife, and because now she's sleeping with your brother also. <laughs> so I, that was another curveball. Right. And you have these two daughters. Yes. At what point did you did you have contact with her? Did you get pictures of the girls?
1: Nothing. The wife. Uh, we went to went to the attorneys. I remember when I was on the streets, and my dad said to me, "If you're any kind of man," and he was a very quiet. Uh, my father would never speak or or shy. He couldn't give him a Christmas present or anything. He had to put it in a room and he had to open in his own. It's very quiet. He says to me, "If you're any of, any of man that I have brought you up to be, you will sign everything over to your wife for the children's sake." So I didn't want to. And the, my ex-wife was going, Rob, no, look, look, you can see him every weekend. You know, I will never stop you seeing your kids. So we went and I signed everything over, the house, the cars, the bank account and everything. And as soon as I put my, it was all there, all of us. And as soon as I put my final signature and study it over, she stood up and said, you'll never see your fucking kids again. And she walked out. And I didn't. She didn't let my mom see him. She didn't let me see him. And, and uh, every Christmas, and I have two daughters, every Christmas and birthdays, no matter where I was or how well I was doing, I'd go into my bedroom and cry because I missed them.
0: Yeah,
1: I was fucking horrible father. They were
0: also—I mean, they were one in three. You're talking about a lifetime of punishment, uh, you yeah. know.
1: But, 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 two years ago, I'm sat in bed early in the morning, six-hour difference, and I get a ping on my phone from a mess messenger. I opened it up and it's Charlotte, my eldest daughter. And she says, Dad, I think it's gone on long enough. I don't believe what mom's ever told me. I wanna see you. And I just, I'm sorry, I'm filling up here. I just, I got, I got a picture of the text and it's actually framed on my wall. I talked to her on text, then we did a, a, a call, then we did a Zoom and then I was on the next plane I went over there to see her. My wife came with me. We arranged to meet around the corner from the hotel in her house, and she hugged me and we cried. And it was just like a phenomenal, phenomenal meeting. And then she said, I have a surprise for you. And I thought, amazing. So we went back to her house and she handed me my nine month old granddaughter. I'm oh. right there, Jen. Right there. I knew I was doing the right thing. I knew that God was looking after me. And I knew it was going to be okay. Just to hold that little girl. And my daughter was just, I was just so grateful. I was just so grateful. Now the youngest one has never been in touch because she just, she hates me. And that's okay. But, you know, I work with alcoholics and the families. That's what I do. And I kind of always thought in the back of my mind that if I do the right thing, that the right thing is going to eventually happen. And it took 20 years, but it happened. Now we speak every day. You know, The book that I wrote is dedicated to her. Just a picture of me and her on the front of the book. It's just yeah. absolutely unbelievable.
0: I saw the cover of the book, and I knew, of course, that when you look at the cover of the book, you know instantly what's happening in that scene, but not what happened before or what happened after holy cow so now you're dedicated to working and she's got to have seen the fact that yes you hit rock bottom and yes that was not good but also you didn't have a choice to not be in touch with them
1: yeah
0: I'm, i mean that was forced on you and that you've basically dedicated your life to helping other families in their situation
1: yeah yeah and that's very important to me that, that i do that and the other thing is that my mom did mom died about three or four years ago But uh, what she did is I would send Christmas cards and birthday cards. And uh, even though it couldn't be delivered, my mum would file them in a bottom drawer. So by the time Charlotte come round uh, and said, I want to see my dad, she said, I need to show you something. I fucked my ear again. And she took her upstairs because she thought I'd abandoned her. So, God, it's just come come to me now. No one's heard this before. So she she took her upstairs and she opened the bottom drawer. And she said, Wow, what a cards and presents. She said, That's from your dad over the last 19 years or so, 16 years. He's been sending you stuff, everything. And that's why she called me. That's why she got in touch with me. And then she saw me on the internet doing all sorts of amazing stuff. And she yeah. was so proud of me. That's why she, co- if I would have been over here doing what I do, I don't know what would have happened. I become all of a sudden, I became like a little bit famous. Like she saw it on the internet. And, and, uh, I, she actually, last week, she just, I, I paid for her to go back to college. And, uh, as a, Last week, she's a she's a drug and alcohol counselor.
0: <laughs> wow! Holy cow! Yeah. <laughs> How amazing is that? Holy cow! Yeah. And she and the girls wouldn't have any memory of you
1: at all. Very slight memory. <coughs> uh, Charlotte has very slight memories. You know, knows certain things. She remembers certain slippers I wore. She knew that we, you know, I, I, we have nice cars that we took her in and. Stuff like this. But yeah, uh, she, was, she was very damaged though with, with what happened in the house and happened to me. And of course, I was really put down from mom, which rightly so, I don't begrudge I don't that. Um, so she had this dark outline of me that dad's just an alcoholic and, and, he's, and he's dead or he should be dead by now. But mm. uh, I wasn't. And, I, and I, I came through.
0: What happened with your brother and your ex-wife?
1: Never spoke to him since that then that, that I found out. He's tried to reach out to me and uh, I, don't, I don't want to speak to him. I, I know I should forgive him, but I'm not ready to do so yet. Um, but uh, I've never spoke to my wife either. Um, I have a great relationship with my sister. Me and my sister are awesome. Um, I had a good relationship, kind of, with my mom before she died, even though she kept saying I was drunk when I went around to see her. You know, <clears throat> she still thinks I was drinking. She had cancer, she was on morphine. And my dad, I got to make amends to my dad properly last year, just before he had, it. He had a stroke, so he, does, he doesn't remember me today, but I remember sat down with my dad, I took my wife there for the first time, she met my dad, I sat him down and apologized for all the shit I'd caused, it's just a great moment, you know, great moment, I just rebuilt, just made me the person I am today, I don't fear anything now have these crazy thoughts. I might go home but I don't fear anything because when you've been on the streets, what else can you do to me? I signed a million dollar deal in Dallas about six years ago on on half a floor of a medical building in Highland Park, one of the most affluent places in Texas. And uh, you're fucking crazy. You're going to sign a million dollars? I'm like, what the hell can they do to me that hasn't already been done? Chill out. What's the worst they can do? Is that the office on me? I don't know. We'll go get another office. Chill out, will you? And it was then, it was during that day then I found out that um, I'm going to live life to the full. So I drive a Mercedes McLaren. I live in that million dollar house. I got the Rolexes and the watches and the Louis Vuittons and all that shit. Not to show off because I can afford it. I never live above my means. Mm -hmm. I just love life. Absolutely love life today. I never have bad days, Jen. I just have better days than others. And if I can inspire one person one day at a time, I've done my job. That's all I'm bothered about. I've done my job. So life is good today.
0: Tell me about meeting your wife now, the amazing.
1: Oh, my God. Somebody in there. I'm going to say that's another thing. Nobody's heard this. Of all the podcasts and TV interviews, nobody's asked me that question. So I'm an alcoholic with the addicted mind. So I met her online on the dating app, a respectable dating app, not just Tinder. (laughs) It's a fortune to get on this app. And it wasn't a famous one, but it was people for over 50. So we advertised. Now, I said I'd meet her at uh, Starbucks. So we met at Starbucks. What she didn't know, I was meeting her at 2 o'clock. What she didn't know is I had a 12 o'clock meet. I had a 1 p.m. meet with another girl. She was the 3 p.m. meet. I had a 4, 5, and 6. So I'm, I'm holding court in, in, in Starbucks. And the girls are coming in and I was speaking. I'm about 25 to 22. Okay, we have got to go now. And they'd walk out and they'd wait for the next one. So she was number three that came in and uh, we sat down and we started to talk and uh, it was just, she told me a story how her brother was an alcoholic and uh, shot himself in the head one day with no no reason, no rhyme or nothing. So we had that connection and I, 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 we stopped drinking coffee 20 minutes into, and we're 20 minutes into our meeting and I got another person coming at four. I said to her, can you give me two minutes? I need to go to the restroom. I went to the restroom. I called the other girls up. I thanked them but told them not to turn up. I walked back to the table, I sat down and I said, I'm going to marry you. And she laughed at me. And we got married about nine months later. And we've been, we've been, it's like, it's like God said, here's the perfect wife for you, because that's what she is. She's just, I mean, because of what I do and how I am, I'm flamboyant, I dye my hair, I'm a big guy, muscly guy, I got glasses on, all the girls want a piece of me when I go out doing what I do. Especially on TV because I'm rich, you know, short, you know, sugar daddy or whatever. There's not one woman out there, one woman that I would swap for my wife, Janet. Not one person. Now, before I met her, I'd be all into that. How old are you, 25? Come on, we are going a date. I'm an old man, let's go and do it. But yeah, she's so awesome that she just um, she makes me a better person. Wow. She keeps me accountable. We come off the doctors once after filming. And I come off and I'm all high and I'm still buzzing. And all the guys on the, on the panel would say, you're amazing. And I come out and I click my fingers at somebody and said, can you bring my limousine around? And she'd come over and slap me across the face. He said, don't you ever do that again. First of all, it's not your fucking limousine. Because it's the, it's, the, it's the doctors, it's the company's limousine. And don't you ever slap your fingers at anybody ever again. I thought, wow. But she was so right. Who the hell was I? it's the homeless guy here clicking his fingers. Shut up, will you? Get some humility Rob. And that's the way relationships been. And we make our own deal. Two days, Three days after we got married, we had an argument. And she said, and I quote, because I said, what are we doing with this? And she said, well, that's just the way marriage is. And I said, says, says fucking who? Who's making these rules up? Because this is shit, Janet. And we both went, yeah, this is shit. So we made our own rules up. We dance in the bathroom every morning. We throw stuff at each other. We're always laughing. We're pranking each other. We're joking. You know, it's just, we have this marriage we made up ourselves. It's like, you know, you see these couples and they're arguing and they're not happy and they're not having sex. But it's like, no, get another wife. (laughs) That's not how marriage is supposed to be. If you're arguing more than loving and you're not sleeping together on a regular basis, fuck me. Go and get another wife. Because, you know, I went to bed, when I was 26. I woke up yesterday. I'm nearly 60. That's how fast life goes. It's like, yep. come on, guys, grab it! I, I'm an old man telling the youngsters out there: don't waste time. Do everything that's offered to you. Everything, crazy, do it, because you never know. Because when I'm sat here, even though through all my homelessness, there's not one thing I regret, because I've done everything that was put in front of me. Because that's just the way I am. I just, I just love it. Well, I'm and, also
0: in love with your wife and think she's perfect. So now there's both of us. Wait, wait, wait.
1: Yeah
0: <laughs> And now your whole goal, your whole mission, and it has been for a long time, is to utilize one of the things you do in your recovery, I think the biggest thing that stands out to me, is that you don't have people live in a rehab.
1: No. <clears throat> we believe, and it's been tried and tested from 20 odd years uh, searching and researching uh, when someone goes to a treatment center, where success rates are around three to 10 percent, Ours is 97. Uh, or to a doctor's office or to a therapist's office they've had a shower they're all prim and proper they get there and they're on guard it takes you weeks and weeks and weeks I have a second PhD in behavioural science which I talked about seven years ago so it's all about body language it's all about getting people's head. when you're working with someone via telehealth and they're sat in front of a screen with the pyjamas on you know they've got the pyjamas on and a nice shirt on top they've got the slippers on I can yeah. work with them really good. And the success rate was so sky high that we actually closed down the offices. But, you know, we see people. It's a 90-day program, one hour a day, five days with me, two days with my uh, psychotherapist. And, uh, yeah, it's awesome. It's a real success. And we've worked with the biggest stars in film, football, music, as well as the local janitor and the guy that works at Walmart. I mean, we've worked with everybody. And what we tend to do, and I always say this, I'm not embarrassed with this, the guys who are multi-million dollar fucking rock stars, they pay the rock right money and the guy working at Walmart, hey, this guy's just paid for you to go through the program because that's the way we do it. We do a sliding scale because we oh, never I'd turn anybody down, you know? We We did more pro bono. last. Our pro bono last year was $320,000 worth of pro bono. On top of that, Jen, we gave 200,000 or 250,000 back into the community. So if you're a one parent family, In recovery with kids, we will buy you a car. We will pay 12 months on your rent. We will buy them all Christmas presents, New Year presents. We will sponsor them in your music program at school. We'll buy the uniform. It just tons and tons and tons go back into local communities. And by doing all that, I can rest my head at night uh, on the pillow and go, Yeah, you're a decent guy, Rob, and you did the right thing.
0: Let's wrap up and talk about the imposter syndrome and how you really got past that and what that's like moving forward after feeling that nearly 60 years.
1: Well, for me, it's coming from nothing and being somebody. And and with the musicians I've worked with and the actors who come from nothing, they all suffer the same. We're not, we don't Mm -hmm. deserve to be here. I think how I turned it around was surrounding myself by people who did think I was worthy. Because I spoke in California once, and there's 1,000 people there. Yeah. After the meeting, everyone comes over to shake hands. That's the customary. 999 said it was absolutely amazing, and one person said he was shit. For the last three months, I nearly relapsed on that one person because I kept thinking about that. So I have to change that, and I have to find my worth, and I have to watch my self-dialogue. If I drop a pen on the floor, I'm not a stupid idiot. I just dropped a pen on the floor mm-hmm. because my brain will take that and run with that when I want to relapse. So it's all about knowing my worth today. And the only reason why I know my worth is because people tell me that. So I believe in, if you want to live a million dollar lifestyle, stop hanging around with 10 cent minds because it ain't going to get you there. If you earn 40 grand and you want to earn 50, hang around the guys that earn 50 grand, you'll become one of those. It's as simple as that. You ever had a friend and they have a saying? I had a friend who's going, she's going, shut up. I was like, they was stupid. But after about four or five weeks of hanging with her, I started saying that to people. And that got me thinking. Wow, we must pick up so much that we don't know. So then I started surrounding myself with with winners, with guys that you know are successful and are proud to be. And that's kind of what took away my imposter syndrome. Plus, I have an amazing counselor. She's like, she's sixty-five. She's an old hippie. She's a banging heroin addict. You know, that's in recovery. recovering. She's just awesome. She curses at me and everything. She's just awesome. So. I surround myself by these people you know the counselors yeah. my friends my wife and you know it's awesome
0: i think it's a lot about knowing what you need and finding it too
1: yeah i mean i would swap my life now for anything i should be honest with you i could retire today jen never have to work ever again but that's not about me i'm, I'm about still helping people i made a promise to god i'm not a spiritual guy you know god doesn't mean i believe in the bible or anything i don't i'm not, I'm not religious a, I made my spiritual path with my God. I made a binding contract with Him. If I kept my half, He would keep His, and His was to give me an amazing life for the rest of my life on Earth, and mine was to work with His kids for the rest of my life on Earth. And it's a pretty good contract right now, and I don't want out of it.
0: What are the chances of your daughter coming and working with you?
1: Uh, well, 100%, I think. I mean, uh, she's going to start doing some telehealth for us, and yep. then in November. God, if, if, the, if it's been lifted, the COVID, because uh, America is not checking UK citizens right now, but if it's lifted, she's coming over here for her first Thanksgiving. She's never been to America. So hoping when she comes, I might persuade her to stay. I don't know. I'm just yeah. saying that. But yeah, I'd love, I'd love her to come over here and work full time.
0: Rob, thank you so much for being on today. This was f- uh, phenomenal. And I appreciate you so much.
1: Oh, no, thank you. It was You kind of asked a couple of questions that took me to places nobody else has, and I really like that. I think that's the that's the sign of an absolutely amazing podcaster who, who reaches down and gets that shit. I don't want to get all teary today. And definitely the cards in the bottom of the drawer. I mean, I'd forgotten all about that. And yeah, so thank you for, for bringing me on and getting some good memories going. You're awesome.
0: Thank you.